Go ahead and read the thing, Greg. As a form of media, video games rank just behind music and movies in the general public consciousness. Despite its relative youth, this entertainment vista has been incredibly profitable, enjoyed by billions, and in some cases, held up as true art. In the year 2020, the video game industry was worth $152.1 billion. For contrast, the RIAA reported $12.2 billion in recorded music revenues in 2020, and the 2019 pre-pandemic global box office take for films hit a record of $42.5 billion. Combined, they barely make up a third of the revenues of video games. And it almost all ended before it had truly begun, in 1983. Revenues plummeted from $3.2 billion in 1983 down to just over $100 million in 1985, a loss of 97% of value. The largest, seemingly unassailable company at its forefront became a faded shadow of its former self almost immediately. TV news channels ran story after story about how the video game fad had finally passed, lumping it in with pet rocks, leisure suits, and disco music. Stores refused to stock cartridges or systems, and nearly every single company that produced video games at the time went under. It seems strange, looking back now, in this era of games on our TVs, phones, and computers, enjoyed by billions of people of all ages all over the world, that it very nearly died on the vine. This is a story of hubris, miscalculation, and advancing technology, all culminating in the near death of an entire industry, and how a former playing card company from Japan nearly single-handedly resurrected it. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the North American Video Game Crash of 1983. Greg, this isn't something you feel passionately about, is it? I love this. <laughs> Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, Chief of Development at Relative Disasters Games. And I'm his sister, Ella, Chair of the Analog Gaming Department here at Relative Disasters <laughs> University. Thank you so much for that extremely in-depth uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's it. That's, story, the whole, that's the whole episode. We don't need to go any further. That's it. Uh, thank <laughs> you so much for listening, beloved listeners. Uh, no, I have to say that that is an astonishing amount of money. Oh, God, yes. Like, this is the thing that most people don't get about video games. It's like the, the stereotype is like, oh, it's the dude in his 20s playing video games in his basement. It's like, nah. Video games made over three times what movies made the last time people could go to movie theaters like it and it is it is important to point out that this is the north american video game crash of 1983 uh, mostly centered on the united states europe and japan were doing just fine through all of this uh, this is a oh, classic, really oh yeah this is a classic american story of an economic recession in a very specific industry excellent uh it, it's it's so much fun both both the economics and like the sheer you guys did what of this story make me just thrilled okay can't wait so so in the early 1980s uh the video game market had entered its second generation which was dominated utterly dominated by the atari video computer system uh also known as the atari 2600 now this is pong right 
This is post-pong. 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 Oh. Systems had advanced from being boxes dedicated to playing a single game, like Pong, to having right. swappable game cartridges. This was the game changer oh, here. Literally. Gotcha. It's a game changer. I just thought of that. That was so <laughs> clever. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> uh, but basically, the idea that you could buy a box and you could swap out the games that you played in the box was huge. Arcades were huge. They were doing great business. And the game Space Invaders, one of the most influential and profitable video games of all time, came to the home Atari console, instantly selling over a million copies. Like, this was a huge deal. All right. And other companies noticed. Uh, they jumped in on the video game bandwagon. So Magnavox put out the Odyssey 2. Mattel made a video game system called the Intellivision. Uh, <laughs> yep. Sorry, that's too clever. It's pretty great. Uh, Coleco Was Industries. Was Barbie involved? I, you know what? I didn't bother to look up if they made a Barbie game, but it, I, it would make sense if they did. They had to have, right? Okay, um, sorry. I got you off track. Coleco Industries, which would later become famous for the Cabbage Patch dolls, mm -hmm. uh, released a system called the ColecoVision. And a small engineering outfit called General Consumer Electronics teamed up with Milton Bradley uh, to release the Vectrex system, which was a really neat home system that used vector displays instead of sprite graphics. Trust me, to video Ooh. game nerds, this stuff is super interesting. Uh, I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> so the ColecoVision um, was the biggest competitor to Atari at the time. And those are it, the Cabbage Patch people. These were the people who, like, literally the next year would make Cabbage Patch dolls. Okay. ColecoVision was a big deal because they had the smash hit arcade game Donkey Kong bundled with their system. Mm -hmm. But when I say they were the biggest threat to Atari's market dominance, let's put that in perspective. Atari controlled over 50% of the market. Right. This was market dominance to a scale that has never before or almost never since been seen. Like this was just video games were Atari. Much like okay. in the late 80s, video games were Nintendo. This was this was that level of things. I mean, when you think of games from the early 80s, yeah. you're thinking of like Pac-Man, Space Invaders. Exactly. Uh, and those are all like the big, like if you were to make a movie, <laughs> sorry, I'm just thinking of Stranger yeah. Things. No, no, no. Those are the kind of games you would put in it when you send your characters into an arcade. This created some problems, though. Because every home system had their own games and game libraries, and they were all exclusive to those systems. So if you wanted to play, if you wanted to play those other games, like if you liked Atari games, but then you also liked Cabbage Patch games and Barbie games, yes. you would have to have those systems? Okay. You would have to buy those systems. And that's still something that continues today. Like, each console has, ex has games that are exclusively released for just that console. Yeah. But this was different because back at this time... Only the people making the console could make the games. Okay. There was there wasn't what's called third party third party companies. Okay. So it would be the equivalent of having to buy a TV that could only watch Netflix and then have to buy another TV to play Blu-rays and another TV if you wanted to watch the news. It was a lot of competition very early for a very young industry. Mm -hmm. But they were making money hand over fist, so who cared? This yeah, how expensive are these systems? Expensive. I'm just trying, like, this was so far away from our family when we were oh, yes. in the 80s. Yeah. So I'm just trying to imagine how rich. <laughs> these yeah, no, these were definitely, been. these were definitely very high-end toys. 
Okay. So the Atari 2600, which is what most people think of when they think of the Atari video game console, mm-hmm. was priced at $200 in 1977. Okay. That is equivalent to $850-2020. Ah. So you're talking the equivalent of dropping almost a grand on a system. And how expensive were the games? We'll get into uh, the problem with how expensive the games were. Games were about 20 to 30 bucks. Okay. But $20 in 1982 is not $20 nowadays. No, so. it's like $5 million now. <laughs> I know that. So this was obviously an infinitely sustainable model. Right, <laughs> because everybody has tons of money and free time. And the first big crack in the dam came in 1979. So Atari was owned by Warner Brothers, okay? And a group of programmers working for Warner Brothers didn't think it was fair that they should have to work 80-hour weeks making games and see no royalties from the sales of those games or even just have their names in the credits. Mm. Warner's other main industries, music and movies, didn't work that way, so... Why was this the case for the video games? And this group of programmers left Atari, and they formed their own company called Activision. And this blew the lid off of Atari's main profit strategy, which was that they believed they were the only ones who could make game cartridges for their system. So Activision, being familiar with how to program and produce cartridges for the Atari, had Mm -hmm. no difficulty making their own games that were completely compatible and in direct competition with Atari's own games. That's so sneaky. I love it. It's not sneaky. It was basically a giant... No, but they had a little monopoly and these guys ruined it. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And Atari sued them to stop them. But the court Mm -hmm. decision stated that Activision was within their rights to make the games as long as they paid royalties to Atari for the designs of the cartridges. (laughs) Okay. So you can, right. make, you can make plastic that is shaped in the way that it needs to be shaped to fit into the system as long as the game itself is, u- is unique. Okay. Yeah, that and makes sense. this created a huge problem because what this did was it opened the floodgates and now anybody could make games for the Atari system. As the other systems fell further and further behind in sales, the 2600 became the unquestionably dominant system in the U.S., And while most of the early third-party developers were, like, veteran programmers and game designers, people Mm -hmm. who really knew what they were doing, by 1982, there was this glut of companies just trying to make a fast buck. No, not in America. Not in America. And we need to do a quick (laughs) sidebar here because the fact that some of these games even got made is nothing short of amazing. Um, Give me the worst. Worst of the worst. I'm going to give you my two favorite worst of the worsts. Okay. All right. First up is probably one of the most infamous ones, and it is Ralston Purina, the, the dog food, food company. company. Yes. Okay. They had a game. <laughs> it's called. Is it Space Invaders for dogs? It's called Chase the Chuck Wagon, and it was only yes! available as a mail-in offer with proofs of purchase from bags of dog food. Oh my god, I love it! It could it could like <laughs> dovetail with the Oregon Trail game. It should. It should have. That's right? the route they should have gone. Yes. You're in the wagon. Your dog is looking for. Although this is actually, kibble. we're this is pre Oregon Trail. Like we're no that way. far back in video game history right now. Oh my uh, god, that blows my mind. Okay. And the second one uh, is that the band Journey had a game. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Journey Escape, 
and you have to guide members of the band past groupies, clingy fans, photographers, and, quote, shifty promoters, end quote. Uh, Again, get... this would work perfectly with Oregon Trail. <laughs> to uh, to get the members of Journey into their vehicle and onto their next concert. Oh. And then uh, there were also pornographic games. Yes, uh, there were. I'm not going into detail here for obvious reasons, but these existed and uniformly they are terrible and a lot of them are like really upsettingly terrible um the most famous of which well the graphics back then yes but they did everything they could with them uh the most famous of which (laughs) is a game called custer's revenge oh god yeah that's not a good idea it's horrifying that's that's what i'm talking about here so we're gonna skip over all that but basically but basically what this led to was Atari losing the quality control that they had over the games. Okay? <laughs> so any company could make any game to try to make a quick buck, regardless of quality or even basic playability. And mm-hmm. what you wind up with is consumer confidence dropping off a cliff. No. Because there are, there's no internet. There are a few video game magazines, but they're, they're not they're mostly only bought by people who already know the ins and outs of the systems. So if Mm -hmm. you're, you know, the average person walking into a store, you look at this shelf of games and you have no way of knowing which ones are any good. You're basically throwing darts in the dark and hoping that the game that you spend your 20 to 30 bucks on would be fun or or forget fun. You're just hoping it will be playable. And uh, I mean, if you're a journey fan and you see that on the shelf, do you really care about playability? Pick it up immediately. Absolutely. But, you know, what if you're, you know, the the grandmother of a journey fan and and they are disappointed with your Christmas present? It's going to ruin your relationship. Anyway, I mean, and and this is the thing about these price tags, 20 to 30 bucks does not seem like that much. But in 1982, $20 is equivalent to $55 today. And $30 is equivalent to 84 So that is a ton of money for a game that literally might not even work. Mm. And there's no way to tell from the box whether it's any good or not. Yeah, that does seem a little tricky. It sucks. It's really bad because people will just stop buying games. Except for no. games that they already recognize the titles of, like big arcade hits. And that's mm-hmm. going to jump up and bite us again in a couple minutes here. So the next contributing factor is still something that video game system manufacturers do today. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that really hurt Atari. So Atari and the other console manufacturers sold their systems as loss leaders. Uh, A Mm -hmm. loss leader is something that you sell at cost or below manufacturing costs, trusting that your supplemental products will make up the profits. So... It costs you $400 to make a video game system. You turn around and sell that video game system for $200, but you sell all these games alongside it to make up that difference and more. And when Atari had a monopoly on their cartridges, this was a great strategy. Right. Once their monopoly was broken by Activision and the bajillion other companies that came after them, this was less and less of a viable strategy. And the older the system got you know, the more the price of it had to decline because people were like, well, I'm not going to pay, you know, $850 for a five-year-old system. Mm -hmm. So what most people regard as the final straw came in the form of two of the most anticipated games of all time based on two of the biggest hits of the time period. So when I say classic arcade game, what's the first Mm -hmm. thing that pops to mind? 
Pac-Man and Pac-Man. his Pac-Man. Pac-Man, yeah. exactly. Pac-Man was released in 1980, uh, the arcade game, and it became mm-hmm. the best-selling arcade cabinet of all time, passing even space. Really? Computers. Yes. Okay. It made around $6 billion in the arcades. Little Pac-Man? Pac-Man. You're maybe. kidding. Which, wow. in today's money, that's $16.1 billion. That's billion with a B. One game. $16.1 billion. I wish I could tell you how many quarters I spent on Pac-Man. Oh, God. I well, love Pac-Man. Okay. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that many quarters, but I, every, I can, you and I contributed one. to that. We did. We did. We're part of history. That's impressive. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, in 1982, Atari announces that Pac-Man is coming to the Atari 2600. Woohoo! Uh, it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to be a smash hit. Like, right? They, they pre-manufactured over a million cartridges anticipating sales. And they were right. Mm-hmm. It would be a big seller. So what was the biggest film of 1982? I'll give you a hint. It passed Star Wars to be the highest grossing film of all time, only losing that title 11 years later to Jurassic Park. Okay, I actually know this one. And it is the first movie that I saw in a movie theater. It's E.T., right? It is E.T. That is correct. Spielberg's classic. E.T. the extraterrestrial. I didn't make it through the whole movie, but I do remember Grandpa sitting me down and... Yeah, like I burst into tears when the I would when the too, spaceship man. left That's him behind. Yeah, I didn't last very long. <laughs> that is a hard movie. That is that he is took a... me out and bought me an ice cream. I felt so bad later. <laughs> Whatever. It was, it was, uh, our, our but then I saw it as an adult, man. and uh, it is a really scary movie. I wouldn't take a six-year-old to that, yeah, but I would play that... the video game because it's very exciting. It's got that perfect 1980s like scare the heck out of kids, and also like. Movies in the eighties were so traumatic. I don't think people people really understand what it was like to be a little kid in the (laughs) eighties. And it was hard, man. Our movies were not good. (laughs) That's why we're all so tough and damaged. Okay, damaged. Yes. (laughs) So when Atari announced that an ET game was also coming to the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and they announced this while the film was still in theaters, by the way. Uh, Anticipation for that game was also at a fever pitch. So you have these sure. two games. You have Pac-Man and E.T. And no matter what, they're going to be huge. Okay? So in order to have E.T. available for the Christmas shopping season, um, <laughs> its programming team, and I say team, uh, it consisted of one guy had to program the game in six weeks. Wow. Keep in mind, uh, the time for video game production back then was usually six months to a year. And that's Mm -hmm. with a team of programmers. The fact that this game is even marginally playable is a testament to this guy. (laughs) The game is terrible, don't get me wrong, but it's not a glitchy, (laughs) unplayable mess. And that, I feel, is laudable. Like, good job, dude. And as for Pac-Man... Mm-hmm. Well, the problem here is that the Atari 2600's system limitations couldn't actually translate the arcade game to the home console. That's interesting because it is the most simple game ever, right? You're just like racing around eating things up and you're racing in a straight line and you don't have a ton of control. Well, like I feel like that would be pretty easy to program, right? It seems like it would be unless you're trying to program it to like play on something that isn't equipped to do that. And that's the issue here. Hmm. The, res- the end result is that you have a game that says Pac-Man on the box, but is not Pac-Man once you start playing it. You are still, you know, the little circle chompy guy 
going around a maze being chased by ghosts. Right. But the system couldn't handle, for example, having really having more than one ghost on screen at a time. So the ghosts would like flicker in and out. Um, mm-hmm. The dots that you're supposed to eat, they couldn't program the actual dots. So they're these almost like rectangular things. They called them wafers. So far we have ghosts that flicker and cookies. I don't yes. see any problems with this game so far. And the the maze portions of it also mm-hmm. didn't, like none of it lined up to the arcade version is, is the oh. real issue. And, but not just that. If you went to the other consoles, they had better versions of Pac-Man on the other consoles programmed by their own programming teams. And so this is a problem. Uh, the programming Yeah, that's team, just insulting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you are the number one video game system and you can't get the number one arcade game right. And it's so disrespectful to Pac-Man, an American hero. Oh, God. <laughs> All he yes. wants to do is get chased by ghosts and eat things. Now, keep in mind, however... We can all relate to that. Yes. This this did not screw up sales. Pac-Man sold over 7 million copies. It was the best-selling video game of all time during its release. The, the Wait, Pac-Man for the, the Atari. Crappy Pac-Man. Yep. Pac-Man. Okay. Crap-Man. <laughs> so it was terrible, but it sold very well. Is it that was terrible, saying? but it sold very well because, remember, there's really no way for people to tell everybody that it's terrible there's no internet Mm. reviews the video Mm -hmm. game magazines were very you know small focus and and the video game magazines of the time like the actual reviewers absolutely savaged this thing uh it Mm -hmm. was it was it was terrible and they said so which was like kind of crazy because most of these magazines at the time were kind of like uh, they were kind of like state-run media almost. Uh, they weren't propaganda. Actually, they were. They were very propaganda-y. They weren't actually produced by the video game companies themselves, but you know most of the games that came out would get good reviews. They'd be like, "Hey, this is interesting. This is fun." Comrades, play Pac-Man. Exactly. This is notable for being one of the first ones to not get a good review. Okay. So this this was not a good way to start. Even though it sold a ton of copies, uh, it it was still like regarded as one of the worst video games ever made. Interesting. So really, in a way, Pac-Man is still a superstar. Pac-Man, yes. Atari Pac-Man is sort of swept under the rug and they don't like to talk about it. Bummer. Sharing that low throne with it. Yeah, tell me about E.T. Is E.T. So... <laughs> E.T. is kind of a story in and of itself. It is playable. Okay. And that's about the best thing you can say about it. Is E.T. like running away from the scientists? Oh, no. Is no. it that kind we're, of game? No. We're... Would it go with Oregon Trail is what I'm really asking. No. Okay. No. So I do want to talk about uh, the guy who did all the programming on this. He's a guy named Howard Scott Warshaw. Mm-hmm. And he, he still views this game as something he's kind of proud of it, wait it, this was the guy who was locked alone in a closet and given two weeks to six come up weeks with this but yeah thing. yeah okay gotcha yep. the team of one the team of one and and given you know a tenth of the development time that he should have been given to do a game especially a game that's like this anticipated well it's a challenge howard is it howard or howard yeah and and okay. he 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 views it as a challenge that he overcame and and this is kind of cool because I like this guy's 
I like this guy's view of it. Basically, he was given an impossible task, and mm-hmm. he kind of completed it. I and, mean, and ET sold over a million copies. You know, he he's also responsible for a game that uh, is is less well known, a game called Yars's Revenge, uh, which mm-hmm. is one of the best games for the Atari. Okay. <laughs> uh, the objective of the ET game is you play as E.T., mm-hmm. and uh, you go through these random screens which have holes in them, pits okay. to fall into, and you're supposed to fall into the pits and see if the pits have one of the three pieces of a telephone so you can call home. A dial-up. Well, it's it, you know it's an interplanetary telephone, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's... So... That's the game? <laughs> Like, I mean, it sounds fun. It sounds like it would be a fun little thing to do on an afternoon. Yeah. E.T. is it's really like cute, e. right? has to eat Reese's Pieces to keep his energy up. And, Gotta you know, have those corporate sponsors. And it's, and it's, all, it's all like, uh, you know, it's an early example of random level seeding where you, you never know what's going to be in which pit in the game and which hole you jump into that changes with every time you play it. So that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. I think Howard did a good job. I'm he I'm pro Howard at this did time. A, he did as good a job as he could do. Uh, you can certainly and and the thing is is like the game is playable when you move the Atari joystick. Et moves. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's about that. Here's the problems with it though. Didn't come with Reese's Pieces. It did not, as far as I know. No, I don't think it was. I don't think it did. Did it come with an actual telephone? No. <laughs> no, that that did not. Here's here's the big the big issue here uh, mm-hmm. is that not only did Atari rush the production of this extremely to make it available for sale at the Christmas shopping season, mm-hmm. they had paid anywhere from twenty to twenty five million dollars for the film rights, mm-hmm. and they manufactured about four million copies of the game. Right. Due to the quality of the game. A reported 3.5 million of those units were sent back to Atari. Oh, no. And this is why this is a problem. So we talked about third-party developers making garbage games. But this isn't a garbage game, right? This is But like this isn't a garbage actual... company. This is the right. actual company. Oh, dear. And, and so when consumers kind of feel like between E.T. and Pac-Man we can't even trust Atari. Uh, that sounds like a real earth-shattering moment for a lot of teenage that kids. Is, that is a yeah. death knell. And then we get into the famous Alamogordo landfill story, which I'm just going to cover very Wait, briefly. Tell me here. first what size these cartridges are. Are they like a deck of playing cards? Are they smaller, bigger? Like so a the, video boxes, the boxes are about the size of a video cassette box. Okay. They're a little bit smaller than that. And the and the cartridges themselves are about the size of a large deck of playing cards. They're they're slightly so, bigger than a deck of playing cards. So you could you could keep, you know, a ton of these cartridges stacked up somewhere. But uh, they're, they're not tiny. They're not tiny, but they're also not okay. huge. They're they're much they're less than half as large as for example a NES cartridge for the Nintendo system that okay. came out after Got all it. this. All right. So Alamogordo, New Mexico. In September of 1983, the Alamogordo Daily News reported in a series of articles that between 10 and 20 
semi-trailer truckloads of Atari boxes, cartridges, and systems uh, were crushed and buried in a landfill and then paved over with concrete. Ouch! Okay, so trucks full of Atari Trucks stuff. full of unsold Atari games. Oh, man. And for the longest time, the urban legend was that they were nothing but copies of E.T. Uh... <laughs> That's just such a painful thing to think about. Right? <laughs> so okay. in 2013, a documentarian was given permission to film and excavate this concreted over landfill. Mm -hmm. And they discovered a ton of these E.T. cartridges but they weren't just the E.T. cartridges. They were E.T. and there were, you know, games like Centipede and there were systems that were defective and stuff like that. So it wasn't just the uh, the E.T. cartridges, but they did find a lot of them in this excavated landfill. It just seems so disrespectful to E.T., our favorite little alien. Right. So the next thing that Atari did that basically tipped everything over the edge and said this is it we're we're, we're not going to make it anymore <laughs> mm -hmm. uh was the release of the successor system to the atari 2600 now the the atari 2600 had originally come out in 1977 mm -hmm. and so here we are in 1982 oh yeah you need a new one you need a new one so they bring out the atari 5200 sweet and it bombs because for whatever reason they did not make it backwards compatible meaning the atari 5200 could not play any of the hundreds of games <laughs> for the atari 2600 i mean what are we really losing out though we've got the cabbage patch doll game we've got the purina puppy chow game we've got we're, we're not even up to out, the oregon trail right we're losing out on Space why are people Invaders. upset about we're this? losing out on centipede we're losing out on Missile now they're Command. just thinking forward they're thinking about all the great games they're going to develop once they get howard out of his closet and give him a snack and, and find him some other developers and the problem with that is that all of these people who paid so much money for the atari 2600 are like well, I'm not going to buy that if I can't even play all these games on it. I can just go down to the landfill and get some more. <laughs> there you go. So by the end of their lives, and this is the most instructive figure, uh, the Atari 2600 had sold about uh, just over 30 million units. That's impressive. That is impressive. Uh, the Atari 5200 sold just over a million. Aww. Not even close. So, so, all of these things combined led to a sweeping, devastating recession. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. And and is this the point where people are like, do I even really want to be playing video games? Exactly. All... Yep. Okay. That's gotcha. exactly it. On the retail end of things, basically all these console makers and all these game publishing companies mm -hmm. just went out of business overnight. So, retailers had this huge problem. They have all these games that nobody wants to buy, and the company that they would otherwise return them to just went out of business. Womp womp. So, stores would have to take all of these, you know, otherwise pricey things and mark them down to, you know, nothing, which meant mm -hmm. that the companies that were still trying to survive 
and were like, no, please buy our new game for $20 would never sell because they're like, I can buy six games for that from the discount bin. And three of them might work. Also, at this time, <laughs> home computers started to become a thing. Yeah. The now Commodore we get up to the Oregon 64. Trail. The Commodore 64 hit home. Uh, and Cadillac. That, that basically ended the argument of which is better, a video game unit or a home computer, because the home computers could do games that were much more advanced than the mm -hmm. video game systems of the time, and they could do other stuff <laughs> that you could yeah. write on them. You could, you know, so all of that basically meant that video games were dead. Moment of silence. Moment of silence. <laughs> Did you just make yourself sad? <laughs> I did not, um, because the, the recovery from it is incredibly cool and interesting. Okay. So uh, Atari itself does not immediately go out of business. Uh, lots of people were like, oh, that's it. Atari's cooked. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Atari does report over $536 million in losses, uh, leading Warner Brothers to basically sell Atari to Commodore International. <laughs> oh, ouch. So, yeah. Imagine being sold to Commodore. Right? Oh, man. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, basically, all of these companies that made games go out of business or dramatically pivot to doing other things. For example, Coleco starts making Cabbage Patch dolls. So, they were fine. <laughs> yes they were in the 80s they were fine that was one toy we actually had access to <laughs> uh-huh mattel mattel did okay mattel was fine yeah mattel did but mattel's video game you know thing did lose them so much money that they also needed to get dang lucky with mm -hmm. masters of the universe i mean yep so far this is just like serendipitously bringing us all the great things about the 80s <laughs> Yes. Come on, who would you even be without He-Man Masters of the Universe? Yeah, no, that's that's a fair question. Who would I be? I certainly wouldn't be running around holding swords over my head shouting. Wearing a um, loincloth. Wearing with a giant loincloth. muscles. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I picture you. Yep, yep. And it's accurate. I haven't seen you in a while. It's accurate. <laughs> uh, so this did have uh, a ripple effect mm -hmm. through the rest of the world. It did not damage the rest of the world's uh, video game economy as badly as as it did in North America. Mm -hmm. In 1982, the U.S. worldwide market was about $42 billion. And by 1985, it dropped to about $14 billion. So that's a huge loss, but it's not mm -hmm. the death knell that it was in the actual United States. I see. So the next thing that winds up happening is a former playing card company from Japan decides that they like making these arcade games that they've been making, mm -hmm. and they've produced a home video game system in Japan, and we are talking about the Nintendo Famicom. Oh, I've heard of these guys, Nintendo. Nintendo, yeah. So what winds, what winds up happening is uh, the executives at Nintendo look at the United States, and they're like, well... Um, their video game industry is non-existent. Stores won't even <laughs> stock something if you call it a video game. Um, 
We gotta they come up with something else, boys. Because well, they got so badly burned with all right. of those leftover stuff. They lost tons and tons of money. So, Nintendo says that uh, it's not a video game console. It's an entertainment system. Yes! These are not video games. These are game packs. And this is not a video game system. This is a toy because what Nintendo does that is absolutely genius is they package the first run of the Nintendo Entertainment System in the United States with this robot called Rob. <laughs> I I will go on the record as loving Rob. They also change <laughs> okay. they also change the way that the system looks. The Famicom, if you look at it at the Japanese Famicom, it looks mm-hmm. a lot like what a Super Nintendo would later look like. It it the games plug into the top of it it has controllers that come out the bottom and the nintendo entertainment system they deliberately mimicked vcrs so that Ah. it opens at the front and you push the game into it at the front now keep in mind this is actually really bad for both the system and the game over time it degrades the pin connections on the game but yeah but then you get to buy a new one nintendo basically kind of sneaks in the back door this Mm -hmm amazing industry defining video game system and it completely turns around north america yay the nintendo entertainment system the nes uh, by 1988 controlled 70 percent of the market and had already exceeded 2.3 billion dollars in sales wow now nintendo did some really smart things to learn from what happened to atari Mm-hmm. third-party software developers had to get their uh, games approved by Nintendo before they could be played on a Nintendo. They designed mm-hmm. a lockout chip on the system itself so that if you tried to plug in a cartridge that didn't have the uh, the key chip to that, it just wouldn't play. Ah, very very late in the Nintendo development cycle, a couple of companies figured out ways to get around it, but... It saved the NES from having to deal with people trying to make, you know, dog food games and games based around Journey. And so that basically resurrected the video game market. And from then on, it's been nothing but upwards, pretty much. The history of video games itself is hugely interesting, at least to me. And I'll be happy to uh, speak with our listeners about any questions they might have about the you know, the rest of the time period. But mm-hmm. uh, this this little crash here in 1983 is just such an, an amazing microcosm of market saturation, lack of quality, and just plain good old-fashioned American hubris <laughs> leading to such a market contraction that 96% of the companies that were in that market we're no longer there after it. Like, two companies. I, I can think of two companies. Atari survived making software for other game systems, and mm-hmm. Activision survived. And I can't think of anybody else from that time period. I'm sure there are a few. Write us angry emails telling us how we left out your favorite <laughs> video game company. But basically, nobody else survived this. It would be like, you know, if... Ford produced a car that was so bad that Toyota went out of business. 
Like, it's that level of, are you kidding me how badly this thing contracted? I mean, I think we also see a lot of creativity in there. We see a lot of companies willing to think outside the box. And And we uh, certainly see that now as well. Tackle some new technology. One of the coolest things about video modern video games is that mm-hmm. given online platforms like Steam, mm-hmm. anybody can develop a game in their basement and attempt to market it to people. And That's pretty cool. It's it's really kind of neat. You're no longer really bound to the uh, the distribution model that we used to be. And as consumers, we have more information. And we have a lot more information and and we have a lot more choices. So you know, the end result of this is that monopolies will usually not work out terribly well for the people controlling them in the end. No. But they are great in the short term. And that uh, don't get ahead of yourself and assume that you can make terrible things and people will still buy them because your name is on them. <laughs> well. So that's it. That's the that's the great uh, North American video game crash of 1983. That was such a weird story. I kept... Waiting for something to catch on fire. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be... Well, uh, you did get stuff dumped in a landfill and then concreted over. Yeah, it just seemed like um, everything bad that could happen to a video game company happened to Atari within like six months. And you go from making... Billions. It was billions. billions. But I want to get the actual thing because it's ridiculous billions. Yeah, 3.2 billion 1983 dollars. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, you're barely making a hundred million. Like, that's that's crazy. Like, you just never see that. You never see that. You don't see that in companies that survive. <laughs> that was an amazing story. Seriously, it's a really cool story. Thank you. I, you know, I, I every every time I look into the history of video games, I always find something else interesting. But yeah, that's cool. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our sources in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you would like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let... Actually, I usually say please let us know. I'm going to say please let Greg know because... (laughs) This is all my fault, yes. (laughs) This is your fault. Uh, you can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us or me publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? We're going to go on a journey, Greg. Uh, I was looking at our listener demographics and i noticed that three percent of our listeners are in australia so i thought we would uh, give them a shout out and do an australian story okay we're gonna do black sunday at bondi beach next week oh okay so a, a fun one then all right well that sounds like an amazing disaster and i can't wait to talk about it with you